And I think that's the perfect launching pad for us to go into uh, the book of James because James is an intensely practical theological book. Very practical. It is only 108 verses. It's very short. But within those 108 verses, there are more than 50 exhortations. There's 50 imperatives of how to live. And so it's not some philosophical, do you believe in amillennialism or postmillennialism? It is, James says, how are you living? He doesn't talk about these big lofty doctrines of predestination or regeneration. He says, are you controlling your tongue? It's a completely different style of, of book, of letter, and it just cuts right to the heart of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And we've called the series Faith That Works. And interestingly about James, it was one of the books of the Bible that there was a bit of contention about whether to include it in the canon of Scripture uh, with the early church because some thought James was preaching a works-based salvation. When they read his text, some of the early Christian leaders thought, uh, is he saying that it is what we do that saves us, that we can earn our salvation? Which is where um, some other offshoots have, have gone totally wrong because they do believe that, they do teach that it is what you do that saves you. But as we'll see over the next 12 weeks and as we as an evangelical Bible-believing church, we know that we are saved by grace alone through faith. There's the only thing that saves us is God's grace exercised in faith. But that faith is not alone. And so as recipients of this grace, we believe that it must prove itself in how we live and how we speak and how we treat the poor. Faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Before we jump uh, into the text, I want to give a little bit more context around uh, the book of James and who James was. James was the eldest half-brother of Jesus, uh, and James actually didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God until much later. Uh, in the in the Gospels, there's a story of of Jesus' brothers trying to trying to shut him up, uh, trying to say, you know, you're, you're talking crazy talk by telling people that you are God. Initially, James did not believe that Jesus was God. But then he went through, he must have gone through an amazing conversion. James was present at the, at the ascension, and James went on to become the first pastor, the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, he gave advice to the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul came to him and, and had a question about what to tell Gentile converts to Christianity, and James uh, gave Paul advice and even helped write a letter uh, to send to Gentile Christians. Uh, James's focus is on uh, Jewish Christians. Uh, James writes at the start of his letter to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world. These 12 tribes are the 12 tribes of, of Jews, and they were scattered because there were two dispersions of Jews back in the ancient world. Around 721 BC, the Assyrians came and sacked Israel, and Jews were scattered. And then another dispersion came when uh, Paul persecuted the church, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And again, the Jews were scattered. And so he's writing this letter to the, to the Jesus-believing Jews who were scattered around the ancient world. And what we know, or what theologians believe, is that these Jewish readers are incredibly poor. They're suffering, and they're suffering at the hands of the rich and powerful. Uh, most scholars agree that James was written around A.D. Uh, 46, which is just 10 to 15 years after the resurrection. 
just 10 to 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, the book of James is the very first book that was written to be included in the New Testament. So we're going back 2,000 years just after Jesus died. Um, yeah, great to, a great book for us to jump into. And then James was martyred. He was killed for his faith around AD 62. And uh, Jewish historians uh, say that he was thrown from the top of the temple. That's how he was killed. They threw him off the top of the temple and um, and then beat him to death on the ground after that. He was killed for his faith. He was killed for his faith in saying, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This is the voice of the one who speaks to us today. And as I said, a very practical book uh, and, and practical for us to, uh, to consider how we apply it to our lives. And because of this, um, it's my heart that each week, each of the 12 weeks, we're going to hear from someone in our congregation, part of our family, um, telling their story uh, that relates to the text today. And so I'd love to invite Ed uh, Pagalilawan to come up and share your story about growing up in Miller. So please welcome Ed to the stage. And Ed's going to read the text. <laughs> Hello. Um, so we're reading from James 1. Um, first um, uh, uh, verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstance, circumstances boast in his um, exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Hello, my name is Edmund, Ed for short. Um, me and my family have been coming to the street for almost 15 years now. Um, that's practically the same number of years since we left Manila and moved to Wellington. I am the youngest of nine siblings. Yep, nine. Um, if you list us all down, you'd be able to tell when the strongest influences to the Filipino culture transition. So starting from the eldest, there's Juanito, Loreta, Sonia, Perla, Octavio, Raul. And then there was Irene, Alfred, and Edmund. Yeah. So, <laughs> so with nine kids and parents who never received education as we know it now, and living in the city, you can just imagine how sometimes food is practically rationed at the dining table. Mind you, we never went hungry, 
but we were also not having parties on anyone's birthday. Back then, the goal was simple. All nine of us needed to finish a university degree. No ifs, nor buts. Everything else is a luxury we cannot afford. And yet, for some reason, we were able to buy a television in 1970. It was the latest 14-inch black and white cathode ray tube from the U.S. It came with this really solid and heavy power transformer to get our standard 220 volts down to the 110 volts the Americans used. Um, and after pressing the power button, you kind of peek through this side vent or slots uh, just to see if the vacuum tubes are lit, and that's how you know it was working. <laughs> now, obviously, that TV can't be on all day. No, no, no. It came with a timer of sorts. You see, the transformer it came with, it heats up stepping down the voltage. Okay? And you know it's time to turn off the TV when the transformer is too hot to touch for five seconds. <laughs> Add the weight of that thing to the heat it generates, you'd think there was actually a nuclear reactor inside the house. <laughs> okay, by now you'd probably wonder, or probably wondering why I'm talking about that TV. Well, one of the shows available then was Sesame Street. And it was a show I watched intently as a young child. Before you know it, I was speaking English albeit the American variety, so <laughs> English nonetheless. <laughs> so if anyone can't understand me right now, blame it on Big Bird. Okay. So by local standards, I got quite good that I was allowed to watch more TV, keeping in mind that my folks back then were in no position to teach me that foreign language. Suffice it to say, I did really well in school, and as a reward, I was also allowed to watch, guess what, cartoons. And boy, I watched every cartoon on offer during those days. So again, why am I sharing this today and what does it have to do with God? Well, two things would probably not have happened if it weren't for that TV. First, me and my family would not be living in Wellington right now. That TV gave me a slight edge at an early age in learning, and that translated to better work opportunities later on. Okay? Secondly, and probably more importantly, I would probably not be a Christian today. You see, my knowledge of the Bible did not come from reading it as a child. Um, like I said earlier, the goal was to get ahead of the crowd and have a better life. Reading the Bible would be an unnecessary luxury. My knowledge of the Bible came from watching two cartoons, Superbook and Flying House. That formed a very strong foundation on which an encounter with God much later on in life would anchor to. Now, looking back, I can clearly see how God was there with me throughout. He blessed us with parents who loved us and who did all they can to give us a shot at a better life, at the least better than what they had. Despite the very limited resources, we were able to buy a TV. That was a miracle in itself back in those days. And I truly believe, truly believe it was a provision from God that helped me get to where and who I am right now. God is always moving in our lives every now and then. I encourage you to step back a bit so we see how he fits, fits those pieces together beautifully. We are special in his eyes. And this is made very clear in one of my favorite Philippine songs that was inspired by Isaiah 49, 56. 49, 15 to 16. It says, 
Can a mother forget her infant, be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget, I will never forget you. See, upon the palms of my hands, I have engraved you. Your walls are ever before me. All glory to God. Thank you, church. I love hearing stories, and so I'm excited about um, the 11 others like that that we're going to hear throughout the series. Um, Always so encouraging. Thank you so much, Ed. I'm wondering this morning, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you react when hard times come. I'm wondering how you react when trials come your way. I'm wondering which of you here react with anger or despair and and go, why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? I'm wondering if there's some of you here who have a tendency like me to sometimes get quite sarcastic with God. And of course, of course this is happening to me. Of course this is happening to me right now. I'm wondering if some of you here, when hard times come, you just bolt. You just escape. And you run to Netflix, or you run to alcohol, or you run to video games, or you run to pornography. You just run. Because you can't handle the pain. You can't make sense of the pain. I'm wondering if there's some here who don't have a faith in Jesus, or you wouldn't, uh, you don't believe in a higher power at all. And, and I'm wondering how you react in times of trial. I'm run, wondering what your foundation would be. Because from our understanding of Scripture, there's no basis for you to have a framework to fit suffering into. It's just fatalism. And so I'm wondering how you react when hard times come. And I'm also wondering if there's some here today who can agree and resonate with those words that uh, Ed read from James before, where James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. I'm wondering if there's some here today who can go, yes, yeah, I know that. I believe that. That's real for me. I know Ed is like that, given the upbringing and the life that he's had. I love chatting with Ed and Melody and just hearing about their total faith in God because they've seen him move through difficult circumstances. I'm wondering who is here today. It's interesting how trials elicit different reactions from us, isn't it? Different trials that come our way, they, it calls forth different responses. And, and I think that it's the, the sifting that comes through those trials that reveals our core assumptions or, or reveals core beliefs that we live on. I, I wonder for those who, when hard times come and you get angry and why God, why me, if there's an assumption that your life should be easy. That there's a belief that, no, 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 all should be well with me. All should be okay. This, this thing that's going on, this suffering, this pain, this trial, this, this shouldn't be happening to me. My life should be easy. And, and, I, and I'm wondering why you have that assumption. I'm wondering where that comes from. I'm wondering for those who, who flee, who run, who escape, who, who just don't want to face what's happening. I'm, I'm wondering if there's fear there. And I'm wondering why you, you won't face up to it or, or you can't endure. I'm wondering, (laughs) 
There's a lot of wondering, and and I've and I've wrestled with this text as, as I've as I've prepared, um, even up until midnight last night. So we're going to see how this goes this morning. But um, I feel like there's two things that that or two kinds of people that God wants to address here today, and and I'm very aware that there's going to be some of you here today who are just in the thick of it at the moment, who are in the thick of a severe trial, pain, a a tough marriage, a broken marriage, kids who aren't walking with the Lord, sickness, maybe a sick parent, maybe a recent bereavement, maybe physical pain, maybe there's just problems going on at work that are just doing your head in. You're in the thick of it this morning, and and I hope that the text and I hope that the Holy Spirit speaks tenderly to you today and encourages you today because you need it. But I also have a sense that there's some people here today who, who your life is just all about you, your comfort, your security. Everything you do, every decision you make is just how, how does this benefit me? And, and, and there's just, whenever, whenever stuff goes wrong, your eyes are just so focused on you and, and everything's about you and, and you're, you think you're drowning, but actually you're just face down in a puddle screaming. You're actually just face down in a puddle and all you need to do is lift your head up and look at Jesus, look at the state of the world and go, actually, um, I'm going to take my focus off me for a second and see how I can help others. And so you, maybe need just a gentle kick from the Holy Spirit this morning. And so I, I, my prayer is that God does that in a way that only he can do, the gentleness and the encouragement and the, and the uh, I guess, the rebuke and the stirring. So I'm praying that he does that this morning for all of us. James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And he doesn't say if you face trials of many kinds. He says, whenever. And so James begins with an assumption that life is hard. That stuff is going to happen that we don't like. Right off the bat, he says, whenever. Whenever trials come. And they will come. No one is guaranteed a smooth, safe passage through this life. Trials are coming. He says, whenever they come. And he says, whenever they come, consider them pure joy. And when he says consider, he's not saying feel joyful. He's not saying when when your loved one dies, be happy. What he's saying is, remind yourself. Use your brain to stir up your heart and say, even in the depth of grief and pain and frustration and all those emotions that come when hard times befall us, get a hold of your thoughts and say, God is at work. Remind yourself, God is at work. And that is the joy that James is talking about. He's saying, this is not wasted. This problem is not wasted in God's economy. God can do something with it. So he's saying, consider, take hold of your mind, speak to your heart, and say, this is not wasted. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And we will because we're in a space what's known as the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. 
Jesus has come and he's died and he's resurrected and he's ushered in his new kingdom that we are already living in. But we're not, we've not yet seen the culmination of all things. Jesus hasn't come back and restored all things to his perfect order. We're not with him yet. Death has been conquered, but we still experience it. And so we live in this tension of what's known as the already, the not yet. Death, sickness, disease is still with us, but we're living in the principles of a new kingdom. So this isn't the way things are meant to be, but God is redeeming creation and redeeming us. Nothing is wasted. And so what James wants us to understand today is this. Trials that we face are redeemed by God to bring us to maturity in our character and in our faith for his glory. Trials we face in this fallen world are redeemed by God to bring us to maturity in our character and in our faith for his glory. Trials aren't wasted. And these trials James talks about, he says they are the testing of your faith. The Greek word for testing is rarely used in the New Testament. Actually, in the whole of Scripture, it's used one other time in the New Testament and only two or three other times in the Old Testament. In the New, it's in 1 Peter uh, 1.7. Peter writes, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, he talks about grief and trials. James talks about joy and trials. It's both. Okay, he's not saying, we're not saying today that you have to put on a happy face when stuff happens. Grief and joy. Though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that's that testing word, refined, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The same word is used in the Old Testament for trials, which is refined. It's talking about a refiner's fire where precious metals, gold and silver, are put into the crucible. The heat is turned up and then the dross, the impurities, the imperfections are burned away and all you're left with is pure gold. And so the the application of that metaphor is quite plain to see that in the crucible of life, in in the pain and in the suffering, that is where our impurities, our weaknesses are burned away. And God uses those hard times to bring us to completion. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing, the refining of your faith produces perseverance. So God's desire, his purpose for this trial, the purpose of this refining is to produce something in us. And he says it's to produce perseverance or steadfastness. Perseverance is described by one biblical commentator as the characteristic of a man or woman who is unswerved, unswerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to faith and holiness by even the greatest of trials and sufferings. Unswerved. This is the steadfastness in suffering and trial that God wants us to have. The single-minded focus on Jesus, on on him being at work in the midst of things. This is the steadfastness James is talking about. And it's often translated as patience, this steadfastness, but it's it's less of a sitting in the GP and, and, and waiting for your appointment, even though the GP's running 45 minutes over. It's 
more of like a, you're 32 Ks into a marathon and you've hit the wall and you've got another 10 to go. That is the perseverance, the endurance that James is talking about here. And so why does a test of faith produce perseverance? It's another assumption that James makes. He says the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. Not that it it can or it might. The testing of faith produces perseverance. Why? This is a great assurance of faith for us here today because once you, when you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, he will never let you go. And so the only option is forward. When a hard time comes, when trials come, when suffering comes, for a believer, a follower of Jesus, the only way is forward. What's that song that we sing? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. The only way is forward. When, when Jesus had finished with a particularly difficult teaching for some people to hear in the Gospels, a whole bunch of people started leaving him. They just walked away. They said, oh, this, is, this is too hard. This is ridiculous. And Jesus says to his followers, they're leaving. Are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other option. Abandonment? No. Press on. I'm going to persevere. The only way is forward. And James says we should let perseverance finish its work so that we will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let allow perseverance to finish its work. This idea here of of bearing up, this idea of perseverance or allowing it is, is holding a weight, not throwing it off, but, but standing there and enduring, holding that weight. There's a, a determination there. There's a bearing it. There's a feeling the weight of what you're going through and remain under it, bear up under it. And he says, allow perseverance to finish its work. And I wonder why he says, allow it. Again, there's a, we can see what James is, is, is saying as an assumption is that we will take shortcuts. And we are so good as fallen human beings to take shortcuts. When hard times come, when struggles come, it is so easy for us to go, oh, I'm not dealing with that. I'm going to turn the telly on. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to turn to alcohol. I'm going to turn to pornography. We are so good at taking shortcuts to escape the pain. What's your shortcut? What's your go-to when hard times come? You don't you just don't want to deal with it and so you flick your focus to something else. What is it? Is it Netflix? Is it sleep? Is it shopping? Is it your phone? Is it pornography? You know, I wonder if if for some of us here today, you think you're in a battle at the moment. Maybe in this room, there's people struggling with pornography and you think pornography is the battle, but it's actually what you ran to to escape the battle. Maybe you think your your shopping addiction, your phone addiction, your this thing that you feel like you're struggling with isn't the battle. What if it's what you ran to to escape the pain? wonder if there's some soul searching that needs to go on here today. 
you think you're you think you're drowning, but you're face down in a puddle. You need to look up and go, "Oh man, this isn't the problem. That's the problem, and I've been running away from it because I won't face up to it." I pray that the Holy Spirit would be speaking to us here today. You know, God is inviting us to remain under the weight, and that's a scary place to be. I don't like it. I read this and I go, God, I just wish it wasn't that way. I wish you could just tell me that when hard times come, you'll make them go away quickly so I won't have to endure it. And he says, remain, persevere, bear the weight because I am at work in your life. God uses pain. He uses suffering. He uses adversity to purify us, to refine us, to make us come out as pure Gold, maturity and growth and character and faith and everything that we want to be lie on the other side of adversity. There's no shortcut. God will use it. He will use difficult circumstances in your life because he's for you. He is for you and he will redeem bad circumstances. He will redeem pain. He will redeem trials for your good and for his glory. And it might not be the side of eternity. There are no guarantees that, that, that there will always be an answer. You look at the story of Job. He went through hell on earth and God never told him why. God never told him why. Job questioned the Lord and said, why am I going through this? I've, I've been righteous. I've followed you. I've obeyed. And yet all the suffering, why God? And how did God respond to Job? He said, where were you when I created the world? Can you tell me where the rain comes from? Have you walked in in the deep parts of the ocean? Can you tell me uh, about these wonders of creation? Where do I store lightning? Where are the storehouses of hail and rain and snow? And Job and and the Lord just goes on and on about how amazing and wonderful he is. And Job just goes... You're God, and I'm not, and I will take whatever comes my way. Job never got a reason, and we might not get a reason. Often we will, but sometimes we won't. We have to trust the character of God, that he is accomplishing his purposes for us. Maturity and growth lie on the far side of adversity, and the beautiful thing about that is when you come through something, And there will be many stories in here today of people who have come through. You've come through a valley and then you're able to walk with someone who's gone through that same valley. You have persevered through. God has brought you to maturity and completion and and something and patience and endurance. And then someone else has gone through the same thing and you're able to come alongside them and go, hey man, I've been there. Let me walk with you. Let me help you. We'll get through this. I got through it. You can get through this too. I had the the blessing of someone doing that for me many years ago. I used to be just crippled by anxiety and indecision. And it just, it was just ruining me. And uh, I confessed it to an an older brother here at the church. And little did I know that he'd been through the same thing many years before. And I just said where I'm at and what I'm battling with. And he goes, hey, me too. Oh, man, the weight just off my shoulder. And he was able to go... Let me walk with you through this, Jerem. I've been there. I know that valley. I know that pain. 
but I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. And he's able to speak truth to me and pray with me and remind me of scripture and affirm me every time I made a good decision and encouraged me. He walked me through that valley to bring me and help me come to maturity and completion. And praise God, it's not an issue in my life anymore because I persevered, because he was able to walk with me, able to walk with me through it. But it all requires wisdom, doesn't it? Trials, suffering, pain. Verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Wisdom is required to see that God is at work. Wisdom is required to see that God is at work. Remember, he is for you. Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to set to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That song we sang before, my testimony in that bridge, if I'm not dead, you're not done. That is true for every believer, every follower of Jesus. If you are not in the grave, God is not finished with you. If you are not with him in heaven, he's not done with you. Maybe some of you are here today and you're thinking, that's it, I've blown it. Or this is too hard, I can't. I can't do much with this. There is nothing going on in your life at the moment that God looks at and goes, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I may stuffed up big time. I can't, I, I just, that's beyond me. There is nothing that God looks at and goes, that's too hard. Everything, everything you're experiencing, everything you're going through, God can redeem for your good and for his glory. Nothing is wasted in his economy. And if you are living and breathing, he is working and he has something for you. Don't give up. Please don't give up. Never give up because God is always at work. It may feel hopeless. It may feel like there's no way through. It may feel like that. But that is when we need to take our minds, we need brothers and sisters to come around us, grip us and go, God is at work. He is bringing you to maturity and completion. Persevere. I know it's hard. Come on, I'm with you. I'm with you. God is going to do something with this. Nothing is wasted in his economy and it requires wisdom to see that. Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly in our flesh, we are wasting away. We're getting old. These bodies are dying. These tents are dying. We're all going to die. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, inwardly, our soul, this thing that won't perish, is being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions, that's what our struggles are in this life. They're light and they're momentary are achieving for us, they're doing something, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so what do we do? We fix our eyes on the things not that are seen, but on things that are unseen. Because what we can see is going to perish, but what is unseen is eternal. And that is where God works. It takes wisdom to fix our, our eyes on what is unseen, to look at an issue, a sickness, a problem, debt, loneliness, whatever it is, to fix our eyes, not on the problem, but go, God, I don't know why this is happening, but please give me wisdom to navigate. Please give me wisdom to see this through. Don't let me despair. 
Don't let me run to shortcuts. Don't let me, don't let me go to my favorite vices. Lord, give me wisdom. Is this trial correction from you? Please show me if this is a sin that, that, that you're calling me to repent of. Give me wisdom, God. Is this something I just need to endure? Just to bear up under the weight? God, give me wisdom. God, is this something I need to confess? Give me wisdom. God, is this something I need to address? Please give me wisdom. How to go and have that tough conversation. God, give me wisdom. Help me to see that you are at work and you're not done with me. That is the prayer. That is the prayer when hard times come. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And the beautiful thing is that he won't hold out on you. James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if any of you lacks wisdom, so we see here that God's goal is completeness, no lack. But then he says, if any of you lack, ask for wisdom. And so when you marry those two things up, what does it mean? Ask for wisdom, he'll give it. He doesn't want you to lack anything, so if you lack wisdom, God says, yes. What a beautiful thing to ask for. Here you go. Ask for wisdom and he will give it liberally because he wants you to have it. But, but, verse 5, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. When you ask God for wisdom, believe that he will give it to you. Don't doubt. He wants to give it to you. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt his faithfulness. Why? James uses the picture of an ocean wave. We'll be vacillating. We'll be blown backwards and forth. One minute going, yes, I believe God is going to use this. And then a moment later, oh, where is God? What's he doing? Oh, everything's lost. And then the next moment, no, 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 this is good. I know God's at work. And then, oh, is he even there? Does he love me? Backwards and forwards like an ocean wave. Just unstable, blown about. No anchor, no focus. Such a person is unreliable and unstable in all they do, James says. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. James says, no, 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 no. When you ask for wisdom, believe because he wants to give it to you. Don't be blown about. Don't be blown back and forth. Psalm 84.11, no good thing does he withhold from those who love him. No good thing. He knows what you need. He knows you need wisdom. Ask for it and believe it. He will give you wisdom to navigate and to keep your eyes fixed on him. You know, the wonderful thing about a Christian who perseveres under trial is that it brings so much glory to God. It brings so much glory to God. Think about Edmund's story. Growing up in poverty in the Philippines and he's able to Look back now on the struggles and the trials that came through. And he's able to see the blessing of a television, a 14-inch television, which might have been a big screen back then, I'm not sure. He's able to see the grace of a television and go, God was at work. God was at work. Brings much glory to God when we persevere through suffering. John Piper says, the God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.
Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 12. He pleads with Jesus. There's a, there's a, a thorn in, in Paul's flesh, whether that's it's a, it's a metaphor for, for, a, for a torment that he's going through. And he says, God, this is painful. I hate this. I don't know why I've got this. Please, please remove it. Take this trial from me. Take this pain away. And what does Jesus say? Oh, yep, sorry about that. There you go. No, he says to Paul, I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to use it. I'm going to redeem it for my purposes because my power, my grace is all you need. It is made sufficient in your weakness. I'll be your strength. I'll use that trial. I'll use that pain for my glory. And how does Paul respond? I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I rejoice in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul got it. This, this affliction, this pain, he goes, yes, God is at work. I'm going to rejoice in this suffering. I'm going to rejoice in this pain because when I'm weak, that's when he's strong. It's not about me. It's about him and his glory and his faithfulness and him bringing us through. Paul boasts about his afflictions because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Of knowing Jesus. He talks about having everything stripped away. In poverty and pain and sleeplessness and deprivation and torture. He says, I've learned to be content in all things because I have Jesus. I have Jesus. There's a Puritan preacher of the 1600s, a man called Thomas Brooks, and he says, Followers of Jesus, by the afflictions that befall them, they gain more experience of the power of God supporting them, of the wisdom of God directing them, of the grace of God refreshing and cheering them, and of the goodness of God quieting and quickening them to a greater love of holiness and to a more intense pursuing after holiness. There is so much to learn about the love and goodness of our God through pain. I love what Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet, writes. One of the most beautifully wise and just intense responses to suffering. He says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. What a response to adversity. Though there is no food, there is no money, every one of my business ventures has failed, there are no sheep in the pen, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, yet I will rejoice in God, my Savior. Again, that song we sang my testimony, the miracle I can't get over is that my name is registered in heaven. My name is registered in heaven. Everything falls away. Everything's gone. My name is registered in heaven. There are just, there's so many things that sin and pain and death just can't touch. And one of them is your name written in the book of life. And one day, one day, all this, the hardness, 
the pain, the trial, the suffering, the tears, the grief will just be a distant memory. Actually, you won't be able to remember them at all because we'll be with him. And these light and momentary afflictions will be gone. And we will just gaze on the face of Jesus for eternity. That is our future. That is our hope. That is what we are working towards. And so, now, in the here and now, in the already and not yet, God is not after our comfort. He is not after your comfort. He is after your heart. He is after your character. He is after the strengthening of your faith. And so you can kick and scream and fight and despair and why God, why me? Or we can be humble recipients of the way that God's work, or way that God works and say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. Give me wisdom. Help me through. Help me to see that you are at work. You know, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords was a homeless wanderer. He sometimes didn't have a place to lay his head. He walked the roads. He was abused by people. People told false witnesses against him. And then he was tortured and beaten and crucified. There is no trial in our life that we go through that Jesus doesn't walk alongside us and go, I've been there. I feel that. We are not alone in our trials. And he went through the greatest evil, the greatest suffering in history. And God redeemed that to bring about the salvation of the world. If God can redeem the cross, what can he do in our circumstances? Praise be to God that nothing, nothing we go through is wasted. And he walks with us. We can take our suffering, we can take our pain to him. And Jesus will say, I know. I know, I've been there. I've been there. Let me walk with you through it. And he will speak tenderly. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon me and learn, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and hard and gentle in spirit. He is our loving Savior. He walks with us in pain. He'll bring us through to the end. How good is our God? And so now in this moment, the only response for us really is worship. And one act of worship is communion. So I want to invite Daryl up to to lead us in that. Maybe if the musicians want to come up too.